0: you pray with me. Gracious God, who shows up in our lives again and again, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. Amen.
1: How does doubt or
0: fear Keep you from experiencing new life, from living out your deepest values and following your truest intentions. Today's scripture may in some way be heartening to us, not just because Jesus shows up to the disciples, but because he finds them hiding behind locked doors. How tempting is it for us when we feel unsettled or in doubt to hole up and lock our doors. The crucifixion must have been the most devastating event in their lives. Jesus had publicly stood on the side of the poor and the oppressed, had openly criticized the powers and principalities of his time, and he was killed for it. We find the disciples fearing for their own safety from the Jewish authorities. Now, not the Jews writ large, right? We understand this is not an indictment of the Jewish people. The disciples are Jewish. They were afraid of the authorities of their time. And we find them hiding behind locked doors. And this seems completely reasonable, right? The disciples most likely feel abandoned. Where do we go from here without Jesus? And the answer is a little terrifying. Because, first of all, Jesus shows up. <laughs> they have watched him die walks right through locked doors and stands in front of them peace be with you he says now i don't know about you but i would be freaking out at this point (laughs) if it was me they still don't recognize who he is he says again peace be with you and he shows them his And it's not until they see that that they even know who he is. And the disciples rejoice. And I can imagine them thinking, he's back. We're going to be okay. He'll tell us what to do. And then we come to part two of why it's terrifying. Peace be with you, he says again. And oh, by the way, you're me now. Just as God sent me, I'm sending you. You are responsible for carrying on what I started. This is them being commissioned and sent out into the world. No pressure. This past Wednesday marked the 50th anniversary of Dr. King's assassination. And I can imagine those who worked alongside him having similar feelings of loss and a sense of trepidation about the future of the movement and the country. King stood up for the poor and the oppressed and openly criticized the powers and principalities of his day. And he was killed for it. How tempting it is to retreat behind our locked doors in the face of these realities. I want to share some of my readings about the events of the 1968 Poor People's Campaign from the website of the same name. In the months before his assassination, King and hundreds of thousands of Americans were engaged in a Poor People's Campaign, offering a vision of justice that extended beyond civil rights laws and aimed more broadly at racism, poverty, the war economy, and ecological devastation. Dr. King saw that poverty was not just another issue and that poor people were not a special interest group. He held up the potential of the poor to come together to transform the whole of society. He knew that for the load of poverty to be lifted, the thinking and behavior of a critical mass of the American people would have to change. To accomplish this change of consciousness, a new and unsettling force had to be formed. In other words, the poor would have to organize to take action together around our immediate and basic needs. In doing, we could become a powerful social and political force capable of changing the terms of how poverty is understood and dispelling the myths and stereotypes that uphold the mass complacency and that leave the root causes of poverty intact. In his last Sunday sermon, he stated, there can be no gainsaying of the fact that a great revolution is taking place in the world today. In a sense, it is a triple revolution. That is, a technological revolution with the impact of automation and cybernation, and for us today, we might say the influence of social media. Then there is the revolution of weaponry, with the emergence of atomic and nuclear weapons of warfare, and we might add advanced biological and drone warfare. Then there is a human rights revolution with the freedom explosion that's taking place all over the world. We are coming to Washington in a poor people's campaign. Yes, we are going to break the tired, the poor, and the huddled masses we are coming to demand that the government address itself to the problem of poverty. We read one day, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But if a man doesn't have a job or an income, he has neither life, nor liberty, nor the possibility of the pursuit of happiness. He merely exists. We are coming to ask America to be true to the huge promissory note as it signed years ago. And we are coming to engage in dramatic, nonviolent action, to call attention to the gulf between promise and fulfillment to make the invisible visible. Now I'm sure you're aware by now that all three Spring House churches are a part of the new Poor People's Campaign. 40 days of direct action from May 13th to June 21st. And there will be many opportunities to put our faith and beliefs into action. And for some, that's invigorating. But for others of us, we may be harboring some doubts. Do we doubt our ability to show up, to have the fortitude to stand up for our deepest values? Maybe our faith in what we're about is strong, but we have doubts about how exactly to go about it. What is the right way to engage in social action or public discourse? Am I personally being called to go out and march and make phone calls? Maybe someone else is better suited to that. Does any of that resonate with you? It does for me, because the prospect of being commissioned to be the one to go out in the world and shine a light on the darkness and call for deep and meaningful change is daunting and has potentially costly consequences. This doubting or maybe lack of confidence is pretty common for us as human beings. And it seems to cause us to have trouble seeing what's in front of us. How many people have ever lost their keys? <laughs> you run around, and you think, did I leave it in my coat pocket? Is it, is it upstairs? Did I leave it in the door when I came in and forget to take it out? Running around, crazy looking only to discover that they're sitting in plain sight on the counter. It's hard for us to see with clarity. So in some ways, it's not that surprising that we might have doubt. We're looking in the wrong direction, or we don't see something because we think we know what to expect. And when it's something different, it confounds us. And in our more cynical moments, Maybe we even expect to fail. It's early in the morning on a Sunday. It's cold. There's dew on the ground. Mary Magdalene, carrying her supplies, makes the trek to the tomb, expecting to find the body of Jesus in order to prepare him for burial. She's prepared for a body that's been dead for three days. She's prepared for the smell. She's prepared for the sight. What she's not prepared for is for the body to be missing.
1: So she jumps
0: into problem-solving mode. She assumes someone has moved the body. Where is he? I'll ask this man standing outside the tomb, mistaking him for the gardener. It's the furthest thing from her mind that this could be Jesus. It's not what she expects. And she goes and she tells the disciples as Jesus asked her to do. And they apparently don't believe her because they're still in the house behind locked doors. And Jesus comes through the locked doors and they don't recognize him until he shows them his wounds. A little later, Thomas comes back and he doesn't believe the disciples just like they didn't believe Mary. And Jesus shows up again, walks through locked doors again, and Thomas doesn't recognize him until Jesus shows him his wounds. I mean, it's almost comical. And this isn't about shaming Thomas because that's not what Jesus does. Jesus seeks the disciples out again and again, and the first thing he says is, peace be with you. Thomas doesn't believe the disciples, and it seems perfectly reasonable not to believe until we have proof. In an age of fake news and a seemingly never-ending barrage of propaganda, having some skepticism can be a skillful response. But then the question becomes, how do we trust what we can't see? How do we trust that the kingdom of God is even possible? That ending poverty or racism is even possible? How do we find the fortitude to keep doing this work? Because we don't get Jesus walking through our locked doors and showing us his rules. What we get is the story We get the poor and oppressed all around us showing us their wounds. From gunshots in black bodies made by police to women bravely telling their Me Too stories to the estimated 145 million people still living in poverty and economic insecurity in the richest country in the world. We see his wounds in them and in our own woundedness. We get a story where Jesus keeps showing up over and over again, offering us his presence and his peace. And we get the responsibility of being invited into that story to be the ones who show up again and again, offering our presence and our And it's important to remember that Jesus commissioned the disciples together as a group, as a community. And I think maybe that's part of the answer to our doubts, right? We're not in it alone. We go into this work together. It's not all on me as an individual. When I'm tired or hurting, there's another person to step up. And I, in turn, can be there for someone else when they need encouragement or a break? I might not have the answer, but there's a good bet that there's someone in the community who does if we can just put aside our expectations and see them. Because it might not be the person we expect. Maybe it's somebody who's uneducated. Maybe it's a bunch of high school kids. Am I right? This story we receive is a story of a group of, group of people learning to live into the reality of the resurrection, the reality of what it means to be a community shaped by new life in the dying and rising of Christ, and the expectation-shattering reality that death and oppression don't have the final word, that the art of the moral universe really does bend toward justice. We have the chance to be that new and unsettling force for good in our time. We are the story now. May it be so.